Chapter Two of the Life and Adventures of Sir Lancelot Greaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Penn. The Life and Adventures of Sir Lancelot Greaves by Tobias Smollett. Chapter Two, in which the hero of these adventures makes his first appearance on the stage of action the outward door of the black lion had already sustained two dreadful shocks but at the third it flew open and in stalked an apparition that smote the hearts of our travellers with fear and trepidation it was the figure of a man armed cap a pea bearing on his shoulders a bundle dropping with water which afterwards appeared to be the body of a man that seemed to have been drowned and fished up from the bottom of the neighbouring river having deposited his burden carefully on the floor he addressed himself to the company in these words be not surprised good people at this unusual appearance which i shall take an opportunity to explain and forgive the rude and boisterous manner in which i have demanded and indeed forced admittance the violence of my intrusion was the effect of necessity in crossing the river my squire and his horse were swept away by the stream and with some difficulty i have been able to drag him ashore though i am afraid my assistance reached him too late for since i brought him to land he has given no signs of life here he was interrupted by a groan which issued from the chest of the squire and terrified the spectators as much as it comforted the master after some recollection mr phillip began to undress the body which was laid in a blanket on the floor and rolled from side to side by his direction a considerable quantity of water being discharged from the mouth of this unfortunate squire he uttered a hideous roar and opening his eyes stared wildly around then the surgeon undertook for his recovery and his master went forth with the ostler in quest of the horses which he had left by the side of the river his back was no sooner turned than ferret who had been peeping from behind the pantry door ventured to rejoin the company pronouncing with a smile or rather grin of contempt heyday what precious mummery is this what are we to have the farce of hamlet's ghost ed zooks cried the captain my kinsman tom is dropped astern open god uh, has not bulged too and gone to bottom pish exclaimed the misanthrope there's no danger the young lawyer is only seizing dolly in tail certain it is dolly squeaked at that instant in the cellar and clark appearing soon after in some confusion declared she had been frightened by a flash of lightning but this assertion was not confirmed by the young lady herself who eyed him with a sullen regard indicating displeasure though not indifference and when questioned by her mother replied i don't mind what a says so i don't well all his golden jacket then in the meantime the surgeon had performed the operation of phlebotomy on the squire who was lifted into a chair and supported by the landlady for that purpose but he had not as yet given any sign of having retrieved the use of his senses and here mr philip could not help contemplating with surprise the strange figure and accoutrements of his patient who seemed in age to be turned of fifty his stature was below the middle size he was thick squat and brawny with a small protuberance on one shoulder and a prominent belly which in consequence of the water he had swallowed now strutted beyond its usual dimensions his forehead was remarkably convex 
and so very low that his black bushy hair descended within an inch of his nose but this did not conceal the wrinkles of his front which were manifold his small glimmering eyes resembled those of the hampshire porker that turns up the soil with his projecting snout his cheeks were shriveled and puckered at the corners like the seams of a regimental coat as it comes from the hands of the contractor his nose bore a strong analogy in shape to a tennis ball and in color to a mulberry for all the water of the river had not been able to quench the natural fire of that feature his upper jaw was furnished with two long white sharp pointed teeth or fangs such as the reader may have observed in the chaps of a wolf or a full-grown mastiff and an anatomist would describe as a preternatural elongation of the dentes canini his chin was so long so peaked and incurvated as to form in profile with his impending forehead the exact resemblance of a moon in the first quarter with respect to his equipage he had a leathern cap upon his head faced like those worn by marines and exhibiting in embroidery the figure of a crescent his coat was of white cloth faced with black and cut in a very antique fashion and in lieu of a waistcoat he wore a buff jerkin his feet were cased with loose buskins which though they rose almost to his knee could not hide that curvature known by the appellation of bandy legs a large string of bandoliers garnished a broad belt that graced his shoulders from whence depended an instrument of war which was something between a back sword and a cutlass and a case of pistols were stuck in his girdle such was the figure which the whole company now surveyed with admiration after some pause he seemed to recover his recollection he rolled about his eyes around and attentively surveying every individual exclaimed in a strange tone bodikins where's gilbert this interrogation did not savor much of sanity especially when accompanied by a wild stare which is generally interpreted as a sure sign of a disturbed understanding nevertheless the surgeon endeavored to assist his recollection come said he have a good heart how dost do friend do replied the squire do as well as i can that's a lie too i might have done better i had no business to be here you ought to thank god and your master resumed the surgeon for the providential escape you have had thank my master cried the squire thank the devil go and teach your granum to crack filberds i know who i'm bound to pray for and who i ought to curse the longest day i have to live here the captain interposing nay brother said he you are bound to pray for this here gentleman as your sheet anchor for if so be as he had not cleared your stowage of the water you had taken in at your upper works and lightened your veins you see by taking away some of your blood a dead you had driven before the gale and never been brought up in this world again do you see what then you would persuade me replied the patient that the only way to save my life was to shed my precious blood look ye friend it shall not be lost blood to me i take you all to witness that there surgeon or apothecary or farrier or dog doctor or whatever he may be has robbed me of the balsam of life he has not left so much blood in my body as would fatten a starved flea oh that there was a lawyer here to serve him with a cicerary then fixing his eyes upon ferret he proceeded ain't you a limb of the law friend no i cry you mercy 
You look more like a showman or a conjurer. Ferret, nettled at this address, answered, It would be well for you that I could conjure a little common sense into that numbskull of yours. If I want that commodity, rejoined the squire, I must go to another market. I trow, you ledger domain men be more like to conjure the money from our pockets than sense into our skulls. For my own part, I was once cheated of forty good shillings by one of your brother cups and balls. In all probability he would have descended to particulars, had he not been seized with a return of his nausea, which obliged him to call for a bumper of brandy. This remedy being swallowed, the tumult in his stomach subsided. He desired he might be put to bed without delay, and that half a dozen eggs and a pound of bacon might, in a couple of hours, be dressed for his supper. He was accordingly led off the scene by the landlady and her daughter, and Mr. Ferret had just time to observe the fellow was a composition in which he did not know whether knave or fool most predominated, when the master returned from the stable. He had taken off his helmet, and now displayed a very engaging countenance. His age did not seem to exceed thirty. He was tall and seemingly robust, his face long and oval, his nose aquiline, his mouth furnished with a set of elegant teeth, white as the drifted snow, his complexion clear, and his aspect noble. His chestnut hair loosely flowed in short natural curls, and his gray eyes shone with great vivacity, as plainly showed that his reason was a little discomposed. Such an appearance prepossessed the greater part of the company in his favor. He bowed round with the most polite and affable address, inquired about his squire, and, being informed of the pains Mr. Phillip had taken for his recovery, insisted upon that gentleman's accepting a handsome gratuity. Then, in consideration of the cold bath he had undergone, he was prevailed upon to take the post of honor, namely, the great chair fronting the fire, which was reinforced with a billet of wood for his comfort and convenience. Perceiving his fellow travellers either overawed into silence by his presence, or struck dumb with admiration at his equipage, he accosted them in these words, while an agreeable smile dimpled on his cheek. The good company wonders, no doubt, to see a man cased in armour, such as hath been for above a whole century disused in this and every other country of Europe. And perhaps they will be still more surprised when they hear that man profess himself a novitiate of that military order, which hath of old been distinguished in Great Britain as well as through all Christendom, by the name of Knights Errant. Yes, gentlemen, in that painful and thorny path of toil and danger, I have begun my career, a candidate for honest fame, determined, as far as in me lies, to honor and assert the efforts of virtue, to combat vice in all her forms, redress injuries, chastise oppression, protect the helpless and the forlorn, relieve the indigent, exert my best endeavors in the cause of innocence and beauty, and dedicate my talents, such as they are, to the service of my country. What? said Ferret. You set up for a modern Don Quixote? The scheme is rather too stale and extravagant. What was a humorous romance and well-timed satire in Spain near two hundred years ago will make but a sorry jest and appear equally insipid and absurd when really acted from affectation at this time of day in a country like England. The knight, eyeing his censor with a look of disdain, 
replied in a solemn, lofty tone, He that from affectation imitates the extravagancies recorded of Don Quixote is an impostor equally wicked and contemptible. He that counterfeits madness, unless he dissembles, like the elder Brutus, for some virtuous purpose, not only debases his own soul, but acts as a traitor to heaven by denying the divinity that is within him. I am neither an affected imitator of Don Quixote, nor, as I trust in heaven, visited by that spirit of lunacy so admirably displayed in the fictitious character exhibited by the inimitable Cervantes. I have not yet encountered a windmill for a giant, nor mistaken this public house for a magnificent castle. Neither do I believe this gentleman to be the constable, nor that worthy practitioner to be Master Elizabeth, the surgeon recorded in Amadis de Gaulle, nor you to be the enchanter Alcife, nor any other sage of history or romance. I see indistinguished objects as they are discerned and described by other men. I reason without prejudice, can endure contradiction, and, as the company perceives, even bear impertinent censure without passion or resentment. I quarrel with none but the foes of virtue and decorum, against whom I have declared perpetual war, and them I will everywhere attack as the natural enemies of mankind. But that war, said the cynic, may soon be brought to a conclusion, and your adventures close in Bridewell, provided you meet with some determined constable who will seize your worship as a vagrant, according to the statute. Heaven and earth, cried the stranger, starting up and laying his hand on his sword. Do I live to hear myself insulted with such an opprobrious epithet, and refrain from trampling into dust the insolent calumniator? The tone in which these words were pronounced, and the indignation that flashed from the eyes of the speaker, intimidated every individual of the society, and reduced Ferret to a temporary privation of all his faculties. His eyes retired within their sockets, his complexion, which was naturally of a copper hue, now shifted to a leaden color. His teeth began to chatter, and all his limbs were agitated by a sudden palsy. The knight observed his condition, and resumed his seat, saying, I was to blame. My vengeance must be reserved for very different objects. Friend, you have nothing to fear. The sudden gust of passion is now blown over. Recollect yourself, and I will reason calmly on the observation you have made. This was a very seasonable declaration to Mr. Ferret, who opened his eyes and wiped his forehead, while the other proceeded in these terms. You say I am in danger of being apprehended as a vagrant. I am not so ignorant of the laws of my country, but that I know the description of those who fall within the legal meaning of this odious term. You must give me leave to inform you, friend, that I am neither bare-word, fencer, stroller, gypsy, mountebank, nor mendicant, nor do I practice subtle craft to deceive and impose upon the king's lieges, nor can I be held as an idle disorderly person, travelling from place to place, collecting monies by virtue of counterfeited passes, briefs, and other false pretenses. In what respect, therefore, am I to be deemed a vagrant? Answer boldly, without fear or scruple. To this interrogation the misanthrope replied with a faltering accent, If not a vagrant, 
you incur the penalty for riding armed in a fray of the peace. But, instead of riding armed in a fray of the peace, resumed the other, I ride in preservation of the peace, and gentlemen are allowed by the law to wear armor for their defense. Some ride with blunderbusses, some with pistols, some with swords, according to their various inclinations. Mine is to wear the armor of my forefathers. Perhaps I use them for exercise in order to accustom myself to fatigue and strengthen my constitution. Perhaps I assume them for frolic. But if you swagger, armed and in disguise, assault me on the highway, or put me in bodily fear for the sake of the jest, the law will punish you in earnest, cried the other. But my intention, answered the knight, is carefully to avoid all those occasions of offense. Then, said Ferret, you may go unarmed like other sober people. Not so, answered the knight. As I propose to travel all times and in all places, mine armor may guard me against the attempts of treachery. It may defend me in combat against odds, should I be assaulted by a multitude or have occasion to bring malefactors to justice. What then, exclaimed the philosopher, you intend to cooperate with the honorable fraternity of thief-takers? I do purpose, said the youth, eyeing him with a look of ineffable contempt, to act as a coadjutor to the law and even remedy evils which the law cannot reach, to detect fraud and treason, abase insolence, mortify pride, discourage slander, disgrace immodesty, and stigmatize ingratitude. But the infamous part of a thief-catcher's character I disclaim. I neither associate with robbers and pickpockets, knowing them to be such, that, in being entrusted with their secrets, I may the more effectively betray them, nor shall I ever pocket the reward granted by the legislature to those by whom robbers are brought to conviction. But I shall always think it my duty to rid my country of that pernicious vermin which prey upon the bowels of the commonwealth, not but that an incorporated company of licensed thieves might, under proper regulations, be of service to the community. Ferret, emboldened by the passive tameness with which the stranger bore his last reflection, began to think he had nothing of Hector but his outside, and gave a loose to all the acrimony of his party rancor. Hearing the knight mention a company of licensed thieves, What else, cried he, is the majority of the nation? What is your standing army at home that eat up their fellow subjects? What are your mercenaries abroad? whom you hire to fight their own quarrels. What is your militia, that wise measure of a sagacious ministry, but a larger gang of petty thieves, who steal sheep and poultry through mere idleness, and were they confronted with an enemy, would steal themselves away? What is your, but a knot of thieves, who pillage the nation under color of law, and enrich themselves with the wreck of their country, when you consider the enormous debt of above in a hundred millions, the intolerable load of taxes and impositions under which we groan, and the manner in which that burden is yearly accumulating, to support two German electorates, without our receiving anything in return, but the shows of triumph and shadows of conquest, I say, when you reflect on these circumstances, and at the same time behold our cities filled with bankrupts, and our country with beggars, can you be so infatuated as to deny that the ministry is mad?" or worse than mad, our wealth exhausted, our people miserable, 
our credit blasted, and our state on the brink of perdition? This prospect, indeed, will make the fainter impression, if we recollect that we ourselves are a pack of such profligate, corrupted, pusillanimous rascals as deserve no salvation. The stranger, raising his voice to a loud tone, replied, such indeed are the insinuations equally false and insidious with which the desperate emissaries of a party endeavor to poison the minds of his majesty's subjects in defiance of common honesty and common sense but he must be blind to all perception and dead to candor who does not see and own that we are involved in a just and necessary war which has been maintained on truly British principles, prosecuted with vigor and crowned with success, that our taxes are easy in proportion to our wealth, that our conquests are equally glorious and important, that our commerce flourishes, our people are happy, and our enemies reduced to despair. Is there a man who boasts a British heart? that repines at the success and prosperity of his country? Such there are. Oh, shame to patriotism and reproach to Great Britain, who act as the emissaries of France, both in word and writing, who exaggerate our necessary burdens, magnify our dangers, extol the power of our enemies, deride our victories, extenuate our conquests, condemn the measures of our government, and scatter the seeds of dissatisfaction through the land. Such domestic traitors are doubly the objects of detestation, first in perverting truth, and secondly in propagating falsehood to the prejudice of that community of which they have professed themselves members. One of these is well known by the name of Ferret, an old, rancorous, incorrigible instrument of sedition. Happy it is for him that he has never fallen in my way, for, notwithstanding the maxims of forbearance which I have adopted, the indignation which the character of that caitiff inspires would probably impel me to some act of violence, and I should crush him like an ungrateful viper that gnawed the bosom which warmed it into life. These last words were pronounced with a wildness of look that even bordered upon frenzy. The misanthrope once more retired to the pantry for shelter, and the rest of the guests were evidently disconcerted. Mr. Fillet, in order to change the conversation, which was likely to produce serious consequences, expressed uncommon satisfaction at the remarks which the knight had made, signified his approbation of the honorable office he had undertaken, declared himself happy in having seen such an accomplished cavalier, and observed that nothing was wanting to render him a complete knight-errant but some celebrated beauty, the mistress of his heart, whose idea might animate his breast and strengthen his arm to the utmost exertion of valor. He added that love was the soul of chivalry. The stranger started at this discourse. He turned his eyes on the surgeon with a fixed regard. His countenance changed. A torrent of tears gushed down his cheeks. His head sunk upon his bosom. He heaved a profound sigh and remained in silence with, with all the external marks of unutterable sorrow. The company were, in some measure, infected by his despondence, concerning the cause of which, however, they would not venture to inquire. By this time the landlady, 
having disposed of the squire desired to know with many curtsies if his honour would not choose to put off his wet garments assuring him that she had a very good feather bed at his service upon which many gentlefolks of the worst quality had lain that the sheets were well aired and that dolly would warm them for his worship with a pan of coals this hospitable offer being repeated he seemed to wake from a trance of grief arose from his seat and bowing courteously to the company withdrew captain crow whose faculty of speech had been all this time absorbed in amazement now broke into the conversation with a volley of interjections split my snatch block odds firkin splice my old shoes i have sailed the salt seas brother since i was no higher than the triton's traffle east west north and south as the saying is blacks indians moors marattos and sepoys but smite my timbers such a man of war here he was interrupted by his nephew tom clark who had disappeared at the knight's first entrance and now produced himself with an eagerness in his look while the tears started in his eyes lord bless my soul cried he i know that gentleman and his servant as well as i know my own father i am his own godson uncle he stood for me when i was a boy yes indeed sir my father was steward to the estate i may say i was bred up in the family of sir everhard greaves who has been dead these two years this is the only son sir lancelot the best-natured worthy generous gentleman i care not who knows it i love him as well as if he was my own flesh and blood at this period tom whose heart was of the melting mood began to sob and weep plenteously from pure affection crow who was not very subject to these tendernesses damned him for a chicken-hearted lubber repeating with much peevishness what dost cry for what dost cry for naughty the surgeon impatient to know the story of sir lancelot which he had heard imperfectly recounted begged that mr clark would compose himself and relate it as circumstantially as his memory would retain the particulars and tom wiping his eyes promised to give him that satisfaction which the reader if he be so minded may partake in the next chapter end of chapter two